Hey listeners, this is Trevor of Muriosity. This is just a short forward for this episode. We're trying uh, something new when we wanted to immediately be able to post it, but it is a uh, bonus episode focused on a podcast that both Andrew and I have enjoyed listening to uh, and kind of responding to something that they've been talking about. And we wanted to get this uh, out there as soon as possible. And for that reason, we kind of uh, had to just roll with uh, the punches in terms of technical difficulties since Andrew and I uh, record remotely when we have, you know, a technical issue. Sometimes we have to just go with the the phone call uh, sound quality. And this is what we had to do for this episode. So I hope that you're able to bear with it. And I really appreciate your time listening to this episode. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Trevor. Um, and that was a beautiful introduction, as always. But yeah, this was uh, this this is not going to be a response video. That's something that Trevor and I have talked about the last week. The response videos aren't really what we do. Um, in at Muriosity. Yeah, so. That's yeah, that's true. We don't do videos at all. Um, but uh, the, it's this is not supposed to be like a response podcast. But I was watching um, one of my favorite theology podcasts recently, Trent Horn, his Council of Trent, uh, and he had a guest on, and they were talking about the Protestant idea of self-authentication. And I watched it, and I just was not, um, I was not satisfied with their definition of what the Reformers actually believed and taught um, and thought about the self-authentication of Scripture. Especially when it came to how the Reformers saw the tradition of the uh, Christian church, the universal church, how that fit into uh, how we recognize scripture today. And so um, that was really just motivation for me to kind of do a deep dive and, and refresh on some of my Reformation theology and learn about uh, what the Reformers actually taught and, and why they taught what they did why they believed that scripture authenticates itself and what that actually means. Sounds great. I mean, I think 
that's a, a good way to lead into this uh, because I think that the first place that we have to start is actually discussing uh, just the idea of self-authentication itself and you know what what that actually means right <laughs> yeah um, well here I will take that as a launching pad to do it then so the idea of self-authentication of scripture it, it, it's uh, not a trick question the answer is kind of in the name it's essentially the idea that scripture uh, makes itself known that scripture authenticates itself um, there are various ways of coming at that there are various uh, maybe more extended definitions of what that means but it's essentially the idea that Protestants hold and that they would argue the traditional church held in antiquity that scripture is obvious that scripture makes itself obvious and it might take time but we recognize through the unique characteristics that scripture brings along with the unanimous consensus uh, or virtual unanimous consensus of the church we use those things to say okay this is scripture it authenticates itself it doesn't need an outside body to authenticate it for us so that we know that is okay. the oh, go ahead trevor sorry <laughs> yeah I, I mean i just wanted to to jump on this uh immediate train of thought which is that we are trying to determine what scripture is is this the same as trying to determine which you know book is a part of canon as well as which bible is the right bible esb king james like is this the same sort of discussion uh or are these different topics so yes to your first question um the the goal in self-authentication the goal in the canon discussion in general is what books are in and what books are out right um now the question of translation is a completely different one um all christian traditions now uh thank thanks to the protestant reformation uh, uh <laughs> allow bibles to be translated outside of the original language so the only problem it would cause in terms of translation is that a lot of uh, Protestant Bibles don't include the Apocrypha. But it's important to note that even in Bible translation, it's not uh, that it's actually incredibly rare. It's really looked down upon for denominations to have exclusive projects where they translate uh, the Greek and Hebrew into text for use in their tradition. So Bible translators work across denominational um, lines. Whenever uh, translations come out, ideally there are representatives of a lot of traditions. There are Roman Catholics, there are Protestants, Baptists, and Lutherans, and hopefully Orthodox scholars who are working together to translate the text. So yeah, that is a completely separate issue, but a, a good one. Maybe one we can take up on a different episode. <laughs> But then we're looking at the content itself and not just the uh, chosen translation of it. Does that mean that, uh, you know, essentially what, what we're being, you know, what we're talking about now, is this purely an argument of historicity or the ability to kind of demonstrate that these writings were from the original author that we expect them to be from? Are that they are uh, old enough or written at the right time period to fit the context of the, the Bible itself um, or is this uh, more of a spiritual sense of verification that we're not just 
showing that uh, by every logical means there is, you know, truth to the fact that this this belongs within the scriptural canon, but also that the message of the uh, content itself of the books of the Bible are cohesive to the Christian faith. Yeah, so I would say it's a both and, and you can't have one without the other. When we're talking about uh, self-authentication, this view that the Reformers held, history absolutely was an essential part of it. Not just a bonus perk, but really essential in uh, discerning and being able to recognize what books were canon, what books were to be recognized as scripture. The three main arguments that we use today that you'll see guys like Michael Kruger, who's a Protestant scholar that talks a lot about this, that when they talk about self-authentication, usually their three kind of rules and standards were, um, one, was this written by an apostle or, or a direct um, contemporary of an apostle? Does it contradict uh, things that we already held as scriptures? And this would have gone for the Gospels as well. Does this contradict the Gospels since they were the first four earliest received unanimously by the church? And uh, then thirdly, was this accepted? This universality of it, um, maybe not in the sense of majority rules, but in another sense that that's exactly what it was. Like what did these people that were united as Christians under the Lordship of Christ, believers in the resurrection, how have they in the last in the first centuries of the church received these books? What did they accept as scripture? What books did they reject? What books were disputed and, and how was that disputation handled throughout the early centuries of the church? Excellent. No, that's that's a really good answer. I, I think it, that makes it a lot clearer what exactly we're looking to discuss today. But now I'm just questioning what are the what are the differences because between the Catholic and Protestant traditions, uh, there appears to be a gap that has formed or is continuing to form uh, in terms of what we think uh, justifies. Uh, the tradition of scripture. So could you elaborate a little bit on just kind of that perspective, uh, the Catholic perspective, um, before we really get too further into uh, the Protestant <laughs> viewpoint? Because yeah. I know that it, it, it's probably best that we have a good understanding of, of both sides of this uh, argument as it stands today. Yes, totally. And I, I, um, I know we'll jump more into the history later, so maybe I'll save some of the juicy details but the, the Catholic perspective on self-authentication is really a rejection of it. Um, now, I, I think a lot of Catholic theologians would be uh, charitable to this idea in saying that like there is something really special about Scripture, but they would go and say that doesn't mean that we as people have the ability to determine uh, what is and what isn't the inspired word of God, like what books go in and what books go out. And so they would cite the confusion in the debate in their favor, probably, where the Protestants cited it in their favor, all of the debate over the canon. And they'd say, we do need the magisterium, which for the Catholics, that's just their governing body that they believe the Holy Spirit is working um, infallibly through, at least for 
some the the important matters that they define dogmatically that we need the magisterium that's how we know our primary way of knowing what books are in and what books are out is that we have the the magisterium the government of the church through council and through the authority of the pope to uh, tell us that and this doesn't mean that it, it's man-made in their view it's entirely the opposite because they believe that it's it's god the holy spirit working through that so it's not just because the pope says so or because the councils say so but because the holy spirit is revealing that truth to us through the councils but all in all that's that's their view that we need a magisterial authority to tell us otherwise we couldn't know for sure okay that that makes sense but what are the like material differences between the two because i know that uh, in terms of the biblical canon, we're fairly similar with Catholics. Yes. And that, you know, there's not like a, a, a version of the gospel that the Catholic tradition holds and Protestants do not. But uh, I know that the Apocrypha is one of the main uh, subjects of contention yes. uh, from the Reformation. Yes. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up, Trevor. And I um, am not good enough to remember all of the books in the Apocrypha that they include. But yeah, so that term, you've probably heard it, people listening, the Apocrypha, or as Catholics would call it, the Deuterocanonical books. They are seven intertestamental books. They were written after the sort of established 39 book New Testament, uh, about in the 400 year period of, of prophetic silence, right before the birth of Christ. This is when these books were written. And that's where you get stuff like Esdras, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, uh, Baruch, Bell and the Dragon, I think some additions to Daniel, if I've got it correct. I don't, <laughs> I, um, and that's kind of what I can remember off the top of my head. But there are seven books that were written in between this time, in between the Old and the New Testament, that Roman Catholics have come to believe to be Scripture. Um, and they hold that the Church has always held this, at least so far as maybe the 4th century when this all really started coming together for the church um, and they, they had these more developed canons. And for them, that was formally and dogmatically pronounced at the Council of Trent, so right after the Reformation. But again, remember, these councils aren't making truths themselves. They're just revealing things that have always been true. So yeah, that's the big difference. Uh, other traditions have other additions to their canons, um, and we'll get into that more later, but the different Orthodox traditions have more books or less books, and so it's not super clean cut, but just in the Catholic Protestant uh, world of canon, it's just those books. Um, we all share the same Old and New Testament. They would just throw those deuterocanonical books into the Old Testament. The Catholics would. Okay. And then... Uh Kind of furthering the discussion, uh, and I know that this example came from uh, Trent Warren's podcast, but they mention kind of the, the idea of the magisterium determining uh, scripture, like, uh, for example, the Apocrypha. They refer to it as the difference between, like, a thermostat and thermometer, like that they don't control the temperature um, like a thermostat, but they can tell you what the temperature is, like a thermometer, and essentially that they don't decide what scripture is, God does, but they have the ability to determine that through the magisterium. 
do you think that that's like an accurate portrayal of that perspective? Because uh, I, I recognize that, you know, we're coming from the experts that we could probably just accept that as they both are believing, you know, Catholics and follow that tradition, that that, that would be correct. But do you think it accurately uh, kind of explains that perspective? I, I do think it does. Um, and if I remember that podcast correctly, uh, the fellows up there had mentioned that it is a common Protestant critique to uh, label the Catholic magisterial view of the canon as a uh, thermostat. And I don't think I don't think that's fair. I, I agree with them there that they they do genuinely believe in the Holy Spirit guiding the magisterium. And there is, as we'll see, an evolution in the Roman Catholic Church that kind of eventually and, and somewhat early settles on these books, um, at least in their liturgies. And so for them, the late council maybe doesn't mean as much, maybe doesn't sting as much as some Protestant critics would want it to, because they are saying that, well, this problem arose, the Reformation kind of instituted it, and um, the magisterium was there in the council to affirm what had always been true, and uh, just like a thermometer tells us what the temperature in the room is, now, thanks to that council, we can know for sure that these are the books of the Bible. So I, I do think that's fair, totally fair for them. Okay. That sounds good. That I, I, I was interested in finding out what your opinion was about that, because <laughs> I had not heard the comparison before, and it, seem, and it seems pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, but uh, now, I guess that we have, I feel like, thoroughly covered what the Catholic position is. Uh, what happened uh, after the Reformation? When did things change? The tables got turned, uh, and we altered kind of the perspective of, you know, the authentication of Scripture. Yeah, well, um, two things. First, Dr. John Bergsma, another Catholic scholar that I really respect, so I say this in jest, but um, he, he kind of simplified the story on a recent podcast, I think, with Matt Frad, where he um, was talking about Calvin being in a, or Luther, sorry, being in a debate, and someone brings up one of the Deuterocanonicals against his point, and Luther's response was, um, well, those, those books aren't scripture, and that kind of initiated the movement. Um, and as he listed right after he said, there's so much more to that, and there is. I, uh, I, <laughs> I don't think that that was the uh, initiation of getting those books, or, or not recognizing those books. I almost said getting those books out. That would have been an easy zinger. Uh, but <laughs> not recognizing those books as scripture. Um, I'd say more a historical precedent of what the Protestant Reformation uh, was all about and what they believed. And so, as a Roman Catholic, Luther was under the authority of the Pope, right? And that was his belief system. That was uh, his understanding of the church that Christ founded, was under the authority of the magisterium of the Catholic Church and the chair of Peter, the, the Pope, whoever's sitting in that chair. And when Luther was excommunicated, kicked out of the Catholic Church, and he continued to develop his soteriology and, you know, these ideas of the Reformation that we still hold on to, that you don't have to be in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, 
uh, or the Eastern Orthodox Church for that matter, to be saved. That you can be a Christian just by surrendering your life to Christ. That that's, the church is helpful, the church is useful, but um, that's not the instrument of salvation. And so I think as that idea progressed, the reformers started saying, well, these books have been debated and questioned all throughout Christian history. And when we zoom out of Rome, that at that point by the Reformation, Rome was pretty dead set on those books. Uh, they did not add them at Trent. I will, I will defend that because it's true. Uh, they, for at least 300 years, they, or 200 years to that point, they had really solidly held on to those books as scripture. Um, but when, they, when the Reformers zoomed out, when Luther zoomed out and said, well, the Eastern Orthodox Church has a different Deuterocanon. Now, they have all seven of those books, but they have, I think, five more. Um, and the Oriental churches that left after uh, the Council of Ephesus, uh, they have a different canon. And I don't know if he was reading about the Assyrian church uh, of the East, but, you know, and, and they have, all of these books have been disputed, and, and Luther was a, a brilliant historian, so he also understood uh, the historical uh box that these deuterocanonicals were put in that while pretty early on the 39 books and 27 books of the Old and New Testament were really unanimously accepted, these books continued to be debated among church fathers and among scholars after that and into the medieval period. So I would say that it was more a historical thing. It's possible that it was convenient for Luther. I'd say it, it was convenient for Luther but maybe not in such a nefarious way to paint Luther as this enemy who was just looking for an excuse to get out of the Deuterocanonicals. I think it came from him zooming out and seeing, okay, these books have been debated. No one can really get a settle on them. Maybe they're not scripture at all, like many of the church fathers taught. And it, it kind of came, went from there. Maybe uh, the exile and kind of being labeled as a heretic made him a little bit more empathetic towards others who were also labeled as heretics. Totally, yeah. The Roman <laughs> Church at that time. Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely not, uh, you know, not premeditated in the sense that Luther set out to change the Bible and that was what caused the Reformation. I, yes. It, you're, I, you're right that that was like a huge a huge shift in it and I can see how that's um, a major aspect of kind of the uh, legacy of that uh, very important uh, contribution that Luther made to uh, yeah. especially the judo canon it it it's interesting to see the perspective that there was disagreement on that before the reformation and that was part of what inspired the decision during the, uh, during the Reformation. Yes, totally. And, and that's an important thing to note because, yes, in the Roman Catholic world in, in the early 16th century, uh, there was little debate over those books and any extra books. But in the greater Christian world, with established churches, with, you know, histories rooted in antiquity and claims to apostolic origin, there was debate and there were different conclusions. And Luther saw that. And that, that, more than anything, I'd argue, contributed to his ultimate rejection of them as inspired scripture. Nice. Well, I, I think that uh, now that we have 
a good understanding of the, the history leading up to the reformed view. Let's dig into some of those, you know, post-Reformation scholars and kind of how misconceptions today about their perspective have begun to kind of uh, take a more public stance because, you know, everyone, you know, believes that everything is new uh, again, eventually. And this is one of those opinions um, or uh, more than an opinion, a, a belief, a, uh, a very structural uh, belief, too, very uh, important to the fundamentals of Protestant Christianity uh, that has been kind of getting more, I feel like, more analysis in the public eye mm-hmm. recently. Um, so is, is there any uh, scholars today who you, you think are currently, like, used a lot on this point and... Uh, kind of have have a role to play in the misconceptions. Yes, um, <laughs> and I'm glad you asked that. So there were, and that was um, thinking back on the 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 podcast on on Trent Horn's podcast. That was another thing that I thought wasn't a great representation um, of the argument they were trying to um, argue against was uh, the scholarship that was used, and particularly guys like Lee McDonald and um, Harry Gamble and Elaine Pagels, right? Like, these are prominent Protestant scholars, and that's true, and I'm not trying to deny that. But these scholars tend to have a more progressive view of Scripture, and they don't really affirm a self-authenticating canon, definitely not in the way that the Reformers did. Uh, their, Their view is more of just really a historical development, canon as a historical development. I think McDonald, in his book, now I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's a history of, of the canon, he argues that Paul saw Christ as the New Testament, that Christ as the Word was the New Testament delivered, and so really the Gospels and Paul's letters and all that, they're helpful, and, and I'm sure he'd say God had something to do with their prominence, but he wouldn't really say, like, these are the 27 books that God wanted for us to have as Scripture. Uh, he'd say more so, Jesus is the New Testament, and these books tell us about him. And it, it's just kind of by historical chance and maybe some of God's hand that these are the 27 books that we all share. Which you can see that's a bit different than, than the Reformation view. A lot different, really, of self-authentication. Yeah. It definitely doesn't seem like self-authentication at all. I mean, by, yeah. by any means, it sounds like the authentication is outside of any of the books themselves. Right. Um, which, I, yeah, definitely seems to not be a direct representation of this viewpoint. Yeah, and, and again, to be fair um, to the pod, I don't want to keep referencing Trent's podcast, but uh, I want to make sure I'm charitable and give it respect. Uh, he did go on to critique Michael Kruger, which is totally fair. I mean, that he, he's, Kruger is representative of the position, the Protestant position. So, <laughs> what, 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 what is it exactly about uh, Kruger that makes him more representative of this position? Well, Kruger would jump into this viewpoint that we've been talking about, kind of these um, three streams of self-authenticity, 
uh, right, the um, unanimous exception of them, the um, coming from an apostle, a direct uh, descendant of the apostle, uh, and uh, not contradicting things that were already considered scripture or teaching something different. He, he would jump into that and also say that, like, there were, there are these books in scripture, these 66 books, no more, no less, that are scripture, God inspired, intended for us to have, and they authenticate themselves as that. Okay. So then, I know that there's one other really big name drop that happens in the podcast. The last time I'm going to reference them directly, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the leading uh, quote, I feel like, into the entire view for uh, self-authenticating scripture is Calvin. Yeah, uh, and John Calvin, as we know, is a very important figure in the Reformation. He's also extremely important uh, for North American Christianity too. I believe um, he's probably one of the most uh, like high impact uh, theologians. Yeah, uh, in this in this country over like many many uh, many years. Uh, but I I would have to say that their their quote from him really sounds like uh, like a charismatic preacher of the past uh, century so <laughs> I'm intrigued to hear kind of more about his position and how exactly this that doesn't really sound like the the Calvin the tulip <laughs> yeah uh, definitely anyway and that was that was uh, and is because this is this is a misconception that's thrown around a lot, and sometimes Calvin is quoted in it, and sometimes he's not. But it's this idea that pro the Protestant view of self-authentication is that uh, almost tied to the priesthood of all believers, right? This idea that we all have the Holy Spirit, and, and so in that sense we're all priests or or whatever you want to roll with that, and because of that. Uh, we have the ability to perceive, like, through our emotions, what is scripture and what isn't scripture. That it's an entire, like, experience, feelings-based thing, and, like, that's how we can know what is scripture, because when I read it, I feel it, you know? When I read uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, I can feel that this is scripture, and, and when I read Baruch, I, I can't. I, I don't feel it, like, the switch is off. And it kind of creates this emotional straw man of self-authentication that the reformers would have and did gawk at like they did not believe that at all they definitely believed that the holy spirit guided the church into being able to recognize the canon by supernatural means but to say something like uh a, i don't know a grandma in i feel like i said alabama last time uh we had a podcast so i got to pick a different one a grandma in nova scotia uh, who you know had never left her hometown or her Baptist church reads these documents and just knows that there's scripture that's not what the reformers argued that every single individual Christian can perfectly recognize the canon when they read it through some miraculous experience it's it's a process for the for the reformers like we discussed earlier History was just as important. It was imperative. And so, here, let's spend a minute talking about Calvin, or, or actually reading Calvin. How's that sound, Trevor? 
Um, that sounds great. Story time. Yeah. So here is the quote that is used often uh, to try and define. Yeah, for, those of, for those of our listeners who haven't listened before and heard about uh, Andrew's uh, current place, he is, in fact, a seminarian uh, studying uh, theology uh, at Southwest. Southeastern. Southeast? Yep. Southeastern. <laughs> um, My bad. But. I just. That's all right. Um, well, here, Calvin. Calvin will wake you up. He's always good for exciting reading. Um, <laughs> so here's the quote that's often misconstrued um, on self-authentication. It's in the Institutes, I think, um, chapter seven of book one, section two. It says, "How shall we learn to distinguish light?" Or, sorry, let's see. How shall we be persuaded that it, it being scripture, came from God without recurring to a degree from the church? So he's talking about the magisterium. How can we know? It's just the same as if we were asked, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Scripture bears upon the face of it as clear evidence of its truth, as white and black do of their color, sweet and bitter of their taste. So... By itself, that's not a very um, <laughs> great point for the Protestants, right? Like, okay, Calvin, wh- where are you? Where are you going with this? You're just telling me we can because you can feel it. Like, you can just, you just know it when you see it, when you taste it. That it's scripture. Um, I got that gospel spidey thing. Yeah, yeah, some sort of. Yeah, so if you just read this, then the the view does seem ridiculous. It's like Calvin, this is what you got. Like you left the magisterium over this but as we read that's not what Calvin's saying this is the final sentence of the final section of this chapter and so Calvin's really just putting a cute little bow on it now he's talking about something real the Holy Spirit does lead us and guide us but it is a historical and communal leading and guiding it is not this individual every single Christian has the ability to do this blindly So here's the full quote in context. Um, He he testifies with Paul that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And he talks a little bit about that. Um, And then here's what he says. And this is important, the first few words. This is the whole paragraph of that quote. When the church receives it and gives it the stamp of her authority... She does not make that authentic which was otherwise doubtful or controverted, but acknowledging it as the truth of God, she, as in duty bounds, shows her reverence by an unhesitating assent. As to the question, and then here's we get, how should we be persuaded that it came from God without a degree from the church? It's just as if someone asked, how should we distinguish light from dark, white from black, sweet from bitter, etc., etc.? So that first part of this paragraph is imperative to the Protestant view of self-authentication. The church is necessary for it. Not the magisterium, but the witness of the church at home, as a whole. All who proclaim Christ. When the church receives it and gives it a stamp of her authority, this is important for Calvin. The church does need to receive these scriptures. They do need to give it a stamp of authority. But what the church is doing with that is not making that authentic, which was otherwise doubtful. They're just acknowledging it as the truth of God. And we can see that. Calvin says we can see that, and we can know that it's Scripture, because we have an unhesitating assent from the church through history that this is Scripture. 
And so in context, this view makes a bit more sense. And we see, okay, history is involved. There is still some responsibility to the church. Uh, we're not just blindly going by our emotions when we are determining what is and what isn't scripture. Okay, so that that makes a lot more sense coming from Calvin. I I was really starting to question the the led by my nose to the gospel sort of perspective. And right. I think that the un, un unrelenting ascent was that it. Unhesitating ascent. Unhesitating ascent is a great way to put it. I love that. Um, so that I think covers most of the scholars that we wanted to talk about mm -hmm. today with this. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up about uh, misconceptions uh, that, you know, related to self-authentication? I would say, so before we jump into history, to give some context, I just want to spend a minute or two going over some of the other reformers. Um, just to be fair to kind of represent the view there, and I think that you'll see it's consistent. So Luther is also often attacked for his um, German translation of the Bible. And that's where he calls J uh, James then epistle of straw, right? He thinks that it kind of contradicts Paul's teaching on um, justification by faith. And he questioned whether Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, and, so, and then Jude and Revelation he had reservations about. And so he actually puts them in the end of after the New Testament. His translation, he puts these four books, and he gives a little uh, prologue about it. But what's important to notice from here is that while Luther could be a bit of a crybaby at times, and he complained about these four books, he did not exclude them from the canon. And I think that that's a really important testament to Luther's development and, and Luther's ultimate rejection of the Deuterocanonicals, if it's true that Luther were simply just throwing out books that he didn't like, then it makes absolutely no sense that he would hold on to James, especially after complaining about it in his translation. So what I see in this is Luther complains. He's kind of being a crybaby about these books, these four New Testament books. And ultimately, though, he submits to the witness of the church and testimony of the church and puts them in. Um, other than that would be maybe the 39 articles, as we see, uh, this is the Anglican tradition. They, uh, they talk about this too. They say on the f sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation, uh, and they say, you know, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation. And they say, in the name of Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament. And here it is, of, of whose authority was never of any doubt in the church. And so they're saying these books, uh, the 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books, they were received without doubt. This debate that's gone on with the Deuterocanonicals is clear evidence that they are not scripture, according to the 39 articles and to Luther and Calvin. And so they list them in the Anglican Church. The um, seven Deuterocanonical books are used liturgically. They're included in the in the canon quote unquote of the Anglican Church, but they're not seen as scripture, as God inspired, even though they're still used liturgically in the church, because they don't believe that they were um, 
commonly received is the other term that they use that as the Old and New Testament were the 39 books and 27 okay that, that's so well put honestly like the idea that the um, general consensus was so unanimous and absolute I mean we've been going through the councils on this podcast mm-hmm. and the massive amount of agreement on a lot of these you know points and decisions has been something that has always amazed me but just the level of acceptance that the biblical canon receives uh, and we you know you talk about the the churches that broke off even before uh, the Reformation uh, we still have that consistently received uh, true spiritual canon i mean that that's that is an incredible uh sort of feat that i feel like today you never see that level of agreement (laughs) right well and and that that's the argument of the protestants is that this of all the schism and of all that the disagreements the church has gone through these 66 books are virtually unanimously agreed on I mean, I think I think the Assyrian Church of the East or the Armenian Orthodox Church, one of those two rejects a few New Testament books, but by and large, overwhelmingly, 99.99% of Christians agree on these 66 books, while there's disagreement on the apocryphal books. And so, yeah, totally, that is the argument of the Reformers, that it is clear and obvious what books we should officially recognize and what books we shouldn't. Rather than the Protestant Catholic divide being this difference between, you know, recognizing Scripture by yourself as a solo individual Christian versus the recognition of Scripture by the Council of Authorities or Magisterium is the actual the actual difference is that Protestants believe in a universal acceptance of canon by Christians by like true believers instead of just the authoritative uh, figures within the church? I would say, yeah. Uh, what, what we would call today a lowercase c Catholic. Um, <laughs> it, it, it says something that the universal church agrees on these books, and it also says a lot that they, they disagree on these books, uh, these however many uh, intertestamental books, y- y- what have you, you know? I like it. I like the sound of it. And it, it, it is a very different perspective than what you immediately think of with self-authenticating. Right. Uh, just as a word. Like, you, you would assume that it does mean that, like, the, you know, um, a- any person anywhere could figure out what exactly the scripture should be. Right. Uh, which I think kind of leads into the next thing we should probably talk about. All right. Which are <laughs> Protestant offshoots and cases where there are um, new scriptures involved which I think we could we could say are no longer Protestant but um, for the example uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints right our uh, Mormons have scripture that was not included in the original Canon uh, and the source of that, uh, they say, is divine revelation, uh, unquestionably true. But is that different or the same as uh, self-authentication? Which I think we know the answer now. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, and totally, it's it's not. It's not the same thing. And we see that that's how every good um, cult or hair, you know, if you want to start a cult that's going to last, you need some new scripture. Um, or at least some magic insight that functions as new scripture. We see that with uh, the Mormon church, Joseph Smith and his tablets. Uh, we see that with the Jehovah's Witness, with their New World translation of the Bible. That's their only translation that they can use, um, where they clearly change things, um, going against the scholarship of translation to suit their theology. Um, we even saw, you know, Trevor, you and I both went to Baylor. We see it with David Koresh, who uh, could, mat could perfectly explain the seven seals and uh, had this brand new interpretation that, again, at that point functions as new scripture because the new interpretation is an entirely new teaching in and of itself that contradicts uh, scripture. And all of their arguments are either A, in the case of David Koresh, I'm God, and so you have to believe me, um, but, but more commonly, at least for these bigger groups, it's, uh, yeah, you just got to feel it. Like when you know, you know, and that's, uh, I don't want to straw men Mormons, but that, that tends to be the argument uh, when you have to have this experience, whether it's uh, with an angel or, or just reading it, you, you will be awakened by the Book of Mormon, and that's what will make it clear to you. Uh, that is not the Reformer's view of self-authentication. Excellent. Well, that feels like easy enough, uh, like uh, shooting fish in a barrel, uh, <laughs> considering the, all that we've gone over so far shows that there is not only uh, just a high level of expectation in terms of what it, what is required for, you know, canon authentication, but also a historical um, precedent that really, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways the Catholic argument uh, seems to assume only exists on one side. Uh, there is like a very common uh, perspective that there requires some level of uh, historical context that justifies uh, the authentication of the canon, which, you know, that that is a very uh, central aspect that's missing from a lot of modern uh, scriptures that have cropped up over the past couple hundred years. But the next person I'd like to talk about is uh, Augustine. Okay. I think that you brought up earlier when we were talking before the podcast uh, about kind of a quote from him that I thought was pretty great for a kind of pre-Reformation view that does sound like it is consistent. Um, yeah, sure. Augustine, uh, let me see if I can find it. I'm not good enough to remember uh, <laughs> those quotes off the top of my head. But Augustine, yeah, he, he um, and now he is not, as far as uh, resisting the authority of the church, not a Protestant's best friend, and uh, <laughs> willingly have to admit that. But yeah, Augustine gives um, these reasons for skillful interpretation of, of Scripture, and he tells us to follow the writings favored by the greater number of churches, and churches with greater authorities. I don't think that's a statement that any of the reformers would disagree with. Now, again, I don't want to claim that Augustine would be on the Protestant side of this. 
uh, because he really did trust and, and believe in uh, at least the 4th century view of the magisterium. But as far as this quote is concerned, it does give us some insight into how the early church was viewing the canon and how they were kind of in their own private judgment and communal judgment recognizing what they saw to be scripture and what they saw not to be. It was it was really a game of numbers, not because they were just completely democratic in how they did church, but that they believed that the Holy Spirit would make it clear and obvious. And so that yeah, that's why we get stuff like follow the writings favored by the greater number of churches. I think that I'm sure that Calvin has read that and I think that that probably had some influence and motivation for him himself in his writings. Definitely. No, I I like when you can kind of trace those threads back uh, to the people who inspired the people who inspire us today. <laughs> right. Uh, one other thing in terms of our critiques and counter arguments that we're, we're discussing here, uh, I want to check how does the debating of uh, you know what books belong in the Bible and the use of uh, kind of the spirit led or God breathed or you know inspired uh, through God uh, how how do the use of those terms and kind of debate around them uh, hurt the argument of you know how we justify scripture like is it is it a circular argument to claim that scripture is justified in and of itself um by being inspired uh or is that actually uh not not really refuting uh the argument itself i mean i i, I might be i might be uh, trailing off a little bit there but is their circular reasoning in viewing the Bible as inspired by God or God breathed. Um, well, the the reformers definitely didn't think so, and I I definitely see, uh, and I want to be charitable to the argument that it is circular reasoning to say like, well, the script scripture authenticates itself. Uh, it doesn't need any any like. Uh, conciliar judgment and the reason that we know scripture is scripture is for these three reasons you know um doesn't disagree was received by the church um and uh i'm blanking on the third one but and and th so therefore uh these are the books of the bible that <laughs> presented in that way is a pretty circular argument i don't think it's a circular argument maybe maybe technically it is uh, but i don't think it's a very circular argument to say I believe in Christianity, right? I'm a Christian. I believe in the Holy Spirit as aid and guide through the visible and invisible church. And I believe that these, I mean, not, not even I believe, I'm just recognizing the historical reality that these books have been received unanimously and these books have been um, rejected. And so therefore, I am led to the conclusion that these books are scripture. I don't think that's a circular argument. I think it's more just a faith-based reaction to a historical reality. In a world where we expected uh, new scripture coming from uh, the, the apostles after the resurrection of Christ.
Yeah, that definitely sounds valid, especially considering the Protestant belief of Sola Scriptura, just that there is a, um, I mean, this, this might be a little less theology, a little more like philosophy, but in every system of logic, you eventually have to reach some axioms. Like you can keep on pulling at threads to say, you know, why, 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 why is the sky blue? You know, why do physics work the way they do? And eventually you have to reach some fundamental laws that kind of establish everything else. You kind of build, can build the rest of like, say, you know, for, for Christianity, using scripture as fundamental to how we live our lives, what uh, the beliefs are that we affirm, uh, those all kind of derive, the creeds derive from scripture and the fundamental uh, use of scripture as the base for that does require eventually that you, you have to have that, uh, not, it's not circular reasoning in the sense that, yeah, it is just, it is self-justifying because it is the self-justifying thing that we believe in, that we believe in the supreme, uh, the, the all-powerful, you know, God of the Old and New Testament. Yeah. And that is the justification for <laughs> mm-hmm. the Old and New Testament. But yeah, it, it's, it is uh, one of those things we have to reconcile with the fact that there there are things that, you know, may may seem like circular reasoning and that then won't pass for other things in life. Uh, you, you need to have uh, a defense for, you know, actions that you take, but the defense for kind of our, our faith in scripture does come down to its identity as scripture. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do. I, I agree with that very much. I do like uh, the perspective on it, that it's, it's really not, it's not circular reasoning because, you know, you see scripture as scripture and therefore it's scripture, but the scripture is what it is, uh, which is the most fundamental rule. <laughs> yeah, well, and... Uh, and it gives us that, yeah. There was there a New Testament scholar, a new guy, I actually had him for a class, uh, his dissertation, Levi Baker is his name, and his dissertation, it's got a long name, it's called uh, New Covenant Documents for a New Covenant Community. Covenant as an impetus for uh, New Testament in the first century. And he, he um, furthers this argument, it's a brilliant, brilliant dissertation, that uh, coming with the resurrection of Christ and the establishment of the New Covenant, it was a given that new scripture was going to be written. And there was an expectation for it and there was a, lo- a looking for it and a searching for it. And I don't think that that's something that even a Roman Catholic who rejects self-authentication would disagree with. But I do think, especially when you consider in the historical context and how the canon debate went in the first five centuries of the church, I, I, I think it sets up a precedent for at least an argument like self-authentication to be presented and taken seriously in the early church. Especially when we consider, again, that this wasn't dogmatically defined by Rome until after the Reformation. So there had to have been some sense of self-authentication through the early opening millennium of the church. Yeah. All right. That sounds good to me. I mean, I, I believe that there is 
a an interesting aspect to the idea that you know Jesus Jesus would come live the life that he did make all of like give all these lessons to his followers um, that they would repeat and share them and that for some reason his followers would not expect there to be new scripture yeah um, it, other than the fact that they expected him to return immediately <laughs> yeah and and again this but, is that's not that that was more just further explanation of the Protestant view because the ex, that that is a view in and of itself the expectation of new scripture that Roman Catholic theologians would agree to as well and so I I did also mention before that we have been going through the councils on this podcast, uh, and I believe that there is one of great importance uh, for this discussion. Uh, let's talk about the Council of Rome. Yes, um, and I, I'm glad that we're getting into this. Uh, for those of you that have been listening for 55 minutes and thinking you guys have not gotten into the meat of this yet, uh, our primary goal was to define the Protestant position, but here now the history nerds uh, like me, uh, let's talk about the Council of Rome. So that is, the Council of Rome was a local council in 382 AD, um, allegedly, uh, where the canon of scripture was uh, declared. It, again, a local council, so the Roman Catholic Church, no church recognizes this as an authoritative council. Uh, there's no dogma coming out here. You don't have to follow any of the decrees here. It's essentially just gives us an idea of what bishops and priests in this period, in this geographical area, believed about Scripture at the time. So it gives us insight into the debate in the 4th century. Um, and in that were uh, the books of the Old New Testament in the Protestant Bible as well as the seven uh, deuterocanonical books. Um, and it's identical to the Roman Catholic Church's uh, canon today. So you could see how this would be um, advantageous for their argument. The interesting thing about the Council of Rome is that we don't even hear about it until 300 years later, or two, two or 300 years later, in a document called the Galatian Decree, uh, and this was a papal uh, encyclical, I think, some a papal document that recounts what happened at this Council of Rome in 382 A.D. And uh, that's where we learn about this council, and that's the first appearance, in my knowledge, of this council on the historical record. So there have been scholars who have questioned this, uh, questioned the. Uh, authenticity of this council, whether it happened, whether um, things were added to it in this Galatian decree. But to be completely fair with scholarship, it's been a long time. It's probably been about a century since um, scholars have questioned this. And uh, it's been responded to, and no scholars have really felt import it, it an important enough uh, deal to bring it back up. So, at least on the side of scholarship, we can accept that this council happened. But again, it was a local council. Um, and should I just talk about Hippo and Carthage too, Trevor? There. Yeah, I, I, I'd say go ahead and, and cover them all. Okay. Because uh, we, we also, I feel like we need to discuss how uh, this, this is 
interpreted today too. Besides yeah. just the historical accuracy of them existing. Right. But. So, yeah. Okay. And and again, Council of Rome. It's contested somewhat. Hasn't been in a long time. Let's just accept that it happened. Okay. Let's recognize it as a historical local council. Um, about forty years prior to that, and um, uh, the date is blanking on me now. But in the earlier mid fourth uh, century, there was the Council of Laodicea. Uh, where the Deuterocanonicals were not included, uh, they were rejected, and that has more of a, well, it's actually almost identical to the Protestant canon. I think it might be missing Revelation. Um, so fast forward, Council of Rome, and then there was two big councils. Like, this is the knockout home run for the Apocrypha, for defenders of the Deuterocanonicals. It is the uh, Synod of Hippo in 393, and then the following Council of Carthage in 397. Again, two local councils, not authoritative, but they give us an insight into the debate. And uh, Hippo lays out the same canon of the Council of Rome, the Roman Catholic canon, and the Council of Carthage affirms it. Um, so what is the significance of these councils? Well, let's say what it's not first. What it's not is a definitive... Um, historical analysis of what the church received as scripture and it's also again not authoritative but what it does tell us again what it is is an example that very very early in the history of the church uh, these deuterocanonical books were taken seriously and considered scripture by some uh, not all um, Jerome, who was probably the most famous, if the if the uh, if Hippo and Carthage are the slam dunk for Catholics, Jerome is the slam dunk for Protestants. Jerome was living at this time. He lived through the Council of Rome, um, and he never mentions it. Uh, but he also uh, rejects the Deuterocanonicals. So Jerome embraces uh, essentially the Protestant Old and New Testament. Uh, other church fathers that rejected the Apocrypha would be Athanasius, uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, um, and Origen, uh, a troubling figure, but uh, still a helpful saint to look to. Um, so what this really shows us is that this was a ongoing and active debate. And that remains true, really, um, in other traditions to this day, Protestants and Catholics are pretty settled on it. Well, all traditions are settled on it now, but they're settled on different canons. And I think that's important to consider, which is why I think, especially for the Reformers, um, Hippo and Carthage weren't that convincing. Because when you consider what's happened since then, if Hippo and Carthage represented the, the view of the early church, the unanimous view of the early church, then it's odd that so many traditions that didn't schism until after this council um, have different canons. The Eastern Orthodox Church, as we mentioned, they have five more books in their Bible, uh, but they, they were around, right? The Council of Hippo and Carthage are just as much their history, uh, according to them, as... It is to the Roman Catholic Church, and, and Protestants would claim it as well, and they have a different canon. Uh, within the Oriental Orthodox Church, I think there's three different canons that I know of. Uh, the Coptics have their own um, canon. The Ethiopian Church has like 82 books in it, 
and um, the rest of the other four Oriental Orthodox churches have a different canon, slightly different canon. Um, and as mentioned earlier, the Assyrian Church of the East has a slightly different canon, but with the exception of, again, that one minor difference, when I think it's the Assyrian Church, either them or the Armenians, uh, despite these disputes and differences, the one thing that has consistently been received since as early as the 4th century were these 66 books. There really was just very little to no dispute. By the year 400 AD, no one was questioning whether these books were scripture. But the question of these other books, these Deuterocanonicals, it continued. And it continued on. There were even, this was a minority opinion, but fast forwarding now through the medieval period, now we've got all these schisms, a bunch of different churches. Um, there, were, there were bishops and theologians in the Catholic Church during Luther's lifetime that rejected these books. One of the most famous ones being Erasmus, who, who questioned the validity of the Deuterocanon. And even today, when we look to the Orthodox Church, who is supposed to give us the best example uh, the uh, almost a fossil into the ancient church, right? They are the closest thing. If, if we take the presumption that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, the one true church, then the Orthodox Church is the closest thing to them. And even they've continued this debate um, of doubting and, and questioning, not really doubting whether their deuterocanonicals are scripture, but they have this view that is almost similar similar in a lot of ways to that of the reformers. In the Orthodox Church, uh, they had a council in 1672 where they kind of discussed the, um, the Council of Jerusalem in 1672 with the Orthodox Church, long after the Reformation, where they kind of talk about this disputed history of these deuterocanonical books. And they sort of, almost like Luther, but maybe a little bit more strongly, um, affirm these books as scripture, but uh, in somewhat of a weird way. And then we have a few more documents. I think I've talked long enough about this. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, though, that reveal they have this view of these apocryphal books as while they're, while they're scriptural and while they might even be inerrant, they are somewhat secondary to the received universal 66-book canon. So th this is a debate that transcends um, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, both before and after. Gotcha. So there, there is more than just the divide between Protestants and Catholics on this, uh, and that remains true to this day um, as well. Um, and I, I think that itself is showing that there is more discussion to be had about the canon and the magisterium-based uh, uh, authentication, but I, I, I know that would be a whole other episode. And at this point, we've yeah. <laughs> we've blown past our hour time. Yeah, we um, have we have gone on for so, a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really have enjoyed uh, going over this though, uh, Andrew, because I feel like you have a lot of insight, uh, especially about this uh this point and this discussion between uh kind of the protestant and catholic side uh, especially with your position as an anglican pastor are pretty free mm -hmm. in, in training um but <laughs> yeah i think you definitely have the 
kind of like placement to have a unique uh, perspective and opinion on this uh, particular matter. Uh, so I wanted to ask you one more question before we wrap up, which is just, what does this mean for the church, lowercase c, today? Um, yeah, well, I think two things. For one, if you're a Protestant, read the Apocrypha. Uh, you should do it. The Reformers would have wanted you to. Calvin and Luther and the Anglican Church um, said read them. Read them. They're good for instruction. And that's the same thing that the church fathers said, the ones that rejected it, Cyril and Athanasius and Jerome and Origen, they wanted you to read it too. It's useful stuff. It's not anti-Christian, anti-Yahweh. Uh, the reformers just were convinced that it wasn't at the same level as scripture. So read it if you're Protestant. Um, but more practically for the church, I think we have an ability and an opportunity to unite around the canon that we do acknowledge. And I think we should do that. I, I, I think that this speaks on church unity. I think it speaks on ecumenism. Um, there's been so much cool stuff. I know it seems like a firestorm happening in Rome, but there's also just a lot of cool stuff that's happened. And uh, as far as the ecumenical movement goes on their end, working towards us ever since Vatican II and there's just been a lot of wounds that have slowly been healing from the Reformation and uh, I think that's something worth celebrating and so we can maybe use this as some some sort of symbolic uh, reminder that there's a lot that we are united in uh, with through Christ even across these traditional and uh, authoritative boundaries in the church. Sounds good, man. Thanks. Thanks again for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Uh, and thank you for listening. To find more resources to satisfy your curiosity, go to Miriosity.com and read more about the topics we discussed today. If you are a Miriosity supporter or have rated the podcast on whatever platform you listen, we thank you for helping us produce this show. Check us out on social media. Uh, and this podcast is produced by Miriosity. Music by St. Serial. Well... Cool.